as you might have been able to gather from that um, uh, that uh, that Bible reading, we've taken a little bit of a shift away from um, from the Book of Romans just for a little bit, and I'll explain that to you in a moment on why or what we're doing. Um, a gentleman by the name of Samuel Baker, he was an English explorer. He writes of an account in the Nubian Desert. In uh, it's an eastern, uh, it's one of the regions of the Sahara Desert in the Sudan. And he writes this: Many years ago, when the Egyptian troops first conquered Nubia, a regiment was destroyed by thirst in crossing the desert. The men, being upon a limited allowance of water, suffered from extreme thirst and deceived by the appearance of a mirage that exactly resembled a beautiful lake. They insisted on being taken to its banks by the Arab guide. It was in vain that the guide assured them that the lake was unreal, and he refused to lose the precious time by wandering from his course. Words led to blows, and he was killed by the soldiers, whose lives depended upon his guidance. The whole regiment turned from the track and rushed toward the welcome waters. Thirsty and faint over the burning sands they hurried, heavier and heavier their footsteps became, hotter and hotter their breath, as deeper they pushed into the desert, farther and farther from the lost track where the pilot lay in his blood. And still the mocking spirits of the desert, the demon of the mirage, led them on. And the hike, glistening in the sunshine, tempted them to bathe in its cool waters, close to their eyes, but n- close to their eyes, but never to their lips. At length, the delusion vanished. The fatal lake had turned to burning sand, raging thirst and horrible despair. The pathless desert and the murdered guide lost, lost, all lost. Not a man ever left the desert. But they were subsequently discovered, parched and withered corpses by the Arabs sent upon the search. Men truly believe what it is that they want to believe. Despite not having any authority nor nor any basis for believing what it is that they want to believe. They believe in a mirage. They believe what they desire and what they see. I've got to... Okay, might be my Bluetooth again. Possibly. So many things you have to remember before you even start a message. All these technical things. So these individuals had believed what they wanted to believe. They saw something that deceived their own eyes and that deceived their hearts. And no matter how much closer they went towards that, uh, towards that vision, no matter how much they pursued after it with all their heart in the end, it didn't lead them to life, which is what they were looking for. It led them to death. It killed them. It destroyed them. Sadly, the conviction of this mirage cost these men their lives. And there are many people living their lives today believing in things which there is absolutely no authority for. And one of the greatest of those beliefs relate to heaven. The Bible speaks of many people who have become vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is, in many people, a desire for something to be true that, in spite of their own natural tendencies 
for wanting proof of all things in other parts of life, they can't give an inch that their hope indeed might be false. And this is the view of many people with respect to heaven today. So we're going to be going into a new study. We're going to be going into a new study, a study that I really felt the need to just park the book of Romans again for a little while. And and we're going to be talking about the subject of heaven, but also its counterpart of hell. There's going to be six messages that are going to be dealing with this. And the subject will touch on six different topics. I'm going to be doing a topical series rather than an expositional one. So I need your prayers. Topical studies are very difficult to do. They're not easy to put together. Um, An expositional study is relatively straightforward because the outline is usually presented in the text, you see. When you're entering into a topical study, there's a lot of work involved in it. So I need your prayers, please, when it comes to putting that together. We're going to be looking at six different messages, six different topics that are part of the overall theme. We're going to be talking about what the Bible teaches. We're going to be dealing with what man believes. And we're also going to be talking about what choice man has on the matter. It was, it was this last Friday that this idea came to my mind as vitally important and, and mostly because of that conversation that I had with my neighbours. And to the one there was the belief that, yes, 100%, I'm going to be in heaven with my, with my partner. Um, and this absolute confidence, but it's not based on anything that's of substance. It's wishful thinking. And also from the other who had a priest that told him many years earlier that there really isn't a place called heaven or hell, uh, that basically it's one place that all people go to and it's just encapsulated in love, which sounds really nice. But one would have to then ask the question, where did the concept of heaven and hell ever come from? If it's not in the Bible, then where did it come from? So, neither of these have a basis for what is true, but only a basis based on our own personal imaginations. We've never considered what the Bible teaches on the matter. We've never looked at the authority of the Bible on the matter. And the Bible has a lot to say on both of those subjects. What is heaven and what isn't it? And this is a question that we're going to be trying to answer today. So the first message this morning is called Heaven, God's Dwelling Place. And the second will be Heaven, Future Home. And the third will be Heaven, Citizenship, and what that means. So let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, I will, as in every message, need your help this morning to be able to expound the wonderful truth of the Scriptures, to be able to bring its clarity forth to your people, that all may know, dear Lord, the wonderful joy and the wonderful hope that is awaiting all those who believe. I pray, dear God, that you would be with me and that you may strengthen your people, open their ears to the truth of the Word of God and let it in every way, dear Father, sink down into their hearts with joy. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First, I just want to ask you guys, okay, with the... You got well done. Good one. Okay, no worries. You'll be cold? Yeah? I'll turn that turn that down or, or off or low. Off is good. Off is fine. I'm happy with off. Okay, not a problem. First, the dwelling of God. 
Kes gave a, uh, a bit of an outline with respect to that in the, in the book of Kings. We'll touch on that again in a moment. We're going to be taking our text to begin with from Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Almost everybody's got a concept of heaven, don't they? And they know that it's a wonderful place and certainly much better than here. But they also recognise that, that it's a place that is eternal. Uh, once we enter into heaven, there will be no out of heaven. So it's a, it's a permanent place. It's a place that we're going to be staying at. And that, and that is almost enough to be able to really give us an inroad into the entire idea of heaven. Yet there is so much more. Since there has never actually been any other person apart from Christ who has dwelt in heaven and come back to tell us about it, there has to come an understanding of heaven through revelation. It has to be through revelation. In other words, it has to be through the Bible and the Bible only. Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're going to be moving mostly in one direction. So we're going to be starting in Deuteronomy and we're going to be moving forward through through the Bible in general terms as we go. Deuteronomy 26 verse 15. Look down from thy holy habitation. From heaven and bless thy people Israel and the land which thou hast given us as thou swearest unto our fathers a land that floweth with milk and honey. We're told in this passage that heaven is a holy habitation. It's a holy habitation. It's it's important that the writer looks at this and and he sees this as what it is and that is a holy habitation. And then it's somewhere that God looks down from. He's speaking to God in this prayer. He's, he's writing about the Lord in this prayer. Look down from thy holy habitation. So we understand that this place, heaven, is a holy place. It is a pure place. There is nothing that would defile heaven. Nothing that can come against heaven. There's no darkness in it. It's just light. It's a perfect place. It's pure. It's holy. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, where we were before. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30 is what we're going to be looking at. As Kest had read in this text as the introduction, what we have here is King Solomon. King Solomon here praying that the Lord would bless the temple that has been built in Jerusalem. And this was something that was desired in the heart of David, Solomon's father. But David was not permitted to build the temple because David, the Bible says, was a man of blood. Solomon, however, is a man of peace. The temple itself needs to represent that of its builder. It needs to be a place of peace. David, however, did all the background work, like the perfect design and architect or whatever. He was He was putting all the pieces together. He was collating all the materials for this temple and he was setting it up ready to be built when the time came. And now the temple was built. It took seven years to build this temple. And in verse 30, Solomon continues his prayer to the Lord and he says, And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. When thou hearest, forgive. Solomon understands something else about heaven, and that is that it is a dwelling place. It is the dwelling place of God. 
So two things we discovered about heaven. One, that it is a holy habitation. It's a holy habitation. And the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is that it is God's dwelling place. It's where God dwells. It's where he resides. It's where he is. He is in heaven. Second Chronicles bring these two things together. So move forward to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 30 brings together this beautiful, holy nature of this dwelling place. Second Chronicles chapter 30. We'll read from verse 26 to 27. This time it's it's King Hezekiah who's 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 speaking. He's instructed the people to return to Jerusalem and to celebrate something that has been unobserved for many, many years earlier. And that's the Passover. You remember the Passover? So the Passover is instituted during the time of the Exodus. When the people came out of Egypt, they were instructed to keep this Passover. They were instructed to do so every single year. They were to keep the Passover. And they were to keep that Passover now in Jerusalem. Okay, That was where they were together. But... For many, many years, the Passover had not been kept at all. Completely ignored. So here we have Hezekiah. And he's praying here in Second Chronicles 30, verses 26 to 27. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. So now we see that it is a holy dwelling place. So we've got a confirmation just in the text that this is heaven. This is the holy dwelling place of who? Of God. This is his holy dwelling place. The voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. In the book of Job it's written, Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of the stars. How high are they? We get an understanding that heaven is high. We don't exactly know what that means. Physically high? Well, it's at least practically high. It's practically high in two different ways. It's practically high as far as a state is concerned, but it's also mentally high for us. It's 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 even too difficult for us to be able to comprehend what is the length and breadth and depth and height of, of, of heaven? What it is? What does that refer to? Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray. And he began with the famous method of prayer, instructing them this way. When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. And there we have the will of God is perfectly done in heaven. It is God's dwelling place. That's where he resides. That's where he is. And Jesus' desire, as much as should be our desire, is that as his will is being performed in heaven, so would it be here on earth. That we might have, to a degree, heaven on earth. But earth is not heaven. Earth is not heaven. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, saying, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This is the wonderful blessing that we have with respect to heaven. We can't comprehend it. We can't understand how wonderful it is. And no words can even do so. Yet the Bible still gives us a great understanding of the nature of heaven, what it is, where it is, and who resides therein. So the first thing that we see 
is that heaven is a holy place. It's pure. There is a purity in heaven. Second, we see that it's God's dwelling place. It's the literal place of heaven. It's a place. Thirdly, we see that there are prayers of believers ascended to. There are prayers ascended to in heaven. We mentioned that? I think I mentioned that. Yeah. We pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are praying. And Solomon speaks about prayer going up and ascending into heaven. When God sees the efforts of men to build a house for him to dwell in, Isaiah records his words this way. Thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? Isaiah 66.1 So the fourth item that we see with respect to heaven is that it is God's throne. It's a place of power. It's a place of authority. So here we have four items to, to consider with respect to heaven. Number one, that there is a purity, the purity of heaven. Number two, the place of heaven. Number three, the prayers in heaven. And number four, the power of heaven. And all this is directly related to what the Bible speaks about, about heaven. But there's something else, something a little bit more profound, something that is absolutely amazing. And that's also found in Isaiah. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. There's something more incredible with regards to heaven than we have any concept of being able to understand. Isaiah 57 verse 15, and it's hinted at very well in this text. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Isaiah writes, and the Lord says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Did you get that? Did you get it or did you miss it? With him also. With him also. God is in the high and holy place. He's high and lifted up. He's, he's lofty. He's in the place that's, that refers to as that he's the one that inhabits eternity. But, but he's not there alone. He's there with him also. With who also? Well, it says there, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. This isn't Jesus, guys. Jesus didn't have a need for contrition. There was no sin in Christ that he needed to be contrite about that he needed to to have repentance of. This isn't Christ. This is a description of all those who will enter into heaven. This is a hint of those who will gain heaven and be with the Lord in heaven forever. This is an indication of what is going to be required, first and foremost, to receive the gospel of Christ. There has to be a contrite and humble spirit. And they will be in heaven with God. It's incredible. I mean, just the entire idea, God is in heaven and he will be with you. He's there with him also that is of a contrite and humble heart, a humble spirit. I love it. This is a huge hint in the scriptures that there are going to be people in heaven. 
<laughs> Can you get your hand around that? There are going to be people in heaven. Heaven is eternal. Also, we see that in that text. He that inhabiteth eternity. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. In other words, heaven is permanent. It's permanent. There's no end respecting heaven. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. This wonderful last verse of amazing grace gives just a hint of the permanent eternal scope of heaven. And I say it's just a hint because I'm not really 100% sure if heaven is actually measured by time. Is it measured by time? We really don't know, to be perfectly honest. We know that God inhabits eternity. Is eternity respectful of, of time? God inhabited eternity well before he created the heaven and the earth. And when he did create the heaven and the earth, we know that time began. It says in the beginning, there was a beginning. There was a beginning. What was the beginning referred to? The be- beginning of what? Beginning refers to time. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. Well, God was already there. When? At the beginning. At the beginning of what? The beginning of time. He was already there. He inhabited eternity. So, again, 10,000 years, I don't know. What, what is time? I find that impossible to conceive of in my own limited imagination and mind. And you understand that old saying that if the God that we love and serve is big enough for our minds, he's not big enough for our needs. So there's going to be things that we don't understand. So here we have now an understanding that the purity of heaven, the place of heaven, the prayers in heaven, the power of heaven, the permanence of heaven and the people, the people of heaven. (laughs) Let me bring this together this point heaven is the dwelling place of god and if god did not dwell in heaven heaven would not be heaven heaven would not be heaven it's heaven because god is who god is that's why it's heaven it's heaven because jesus christ is who he is and that is the reason why heaven is Heaven, and to be perfectly honest, I have no interest whatsoever in going to heaven unless my God is there. No interest whatsoever. It would be an empty, shallow place if God was not there. Heaven is heaven because God is there. It's his dwelling place. But more importantly, it's a place with people. With people. It just blows me away. The Bible also speaks about that we are seated now, seated now in heavenly places. We have our conversation in heaven. Now, or conversation, you understand, you remember what I referred to with regards to conversation. The Bible presents the word conversation as manner of life. Yeah. Our manner of life right now is in heaven. We are in heaven already with the Lord. There's something that's really unique about this and I can't understand it. But the Bible makes it plain. The Bible tells us that we already are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Second point, and there's really only two or three points this morning, is the vanity of man, because we alluded this in the beginning of the message. 
Why is it that man would dream up his own view of heaven and who it is that will enter in? The Bible warns us continually about vain imaginations, ideas that are false, notions that are untrue yet believed as true, that man would choose to believe a lie, a mirage. A mirage that will ultimately find them parched with thirst, looking for a well of water but finding none. Finding none. Jesus spoke of the true water of life, didn't he? He spoke of that true water of life and having drunk thereof, man will no longer thirst. John 4.14, he says, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into into everlasting life. Yet far too many look to a mirage to quench their thirst. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul here speaks of the wonder of the gospel. And he speaks about how he is perfectly unashamed in preaching it. Because the gospel is the truth. It is the very words of God. But many people choose rather to believe a lie than they do the truth. I want you just, before we enter into this, we're going to be taking the text from verse 16. But but consider yourself for a minute, okay? I want you to consider yourself for a minute. Was there a time in your life that you believed a lie? I, I don't think there's anybody here that could say no to that question. There was a time in all of our lives when we believed a lie. We believed whatever we wanted to believe with respect to eternity. We heard about it. We heard about heaven. We heard about hell. We heard that that's a permanent place after death. But we never gave it really a second thought. We always thought, I'll be right. I'll be okay. I've made my plans good. You know? We had our own mirage that we set up for ourselves. We wanted to believe it. Perhaps we never really gave it too much thought. You know, There's many people that don't give it any thought whatsoever. They're oblivious to it. But there are also many people that believe in something completely alternative. We might touch on a couple of those things, but it's, it's vanity even entertaining them because it's all vanity. But Paul gives us a really good understanding in this text on what's happened to the mind of man, how the mind of man has completely degraded to the point that they believe their own imaginations. Have a look from verse 16. And we'll read to 25. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Note something really important before we go on. The guide that was hired by the soldiers in that great, maybe in desert, knew the truth. He knew the truth. He knew that the men were seeing a mirage, a false image of water, an image that was in line with what they wanted to be true. But rather than believe the man who knew the truth, who they hired to lead him to safety, to lead them to safety, they killed him. They killed him. This is what occurs every time someone says, your friend, your father, your mother, your brother, your son, your sister, your daughter, is in a better place. Is in a better place. Even though they were never shown the way, or even when they were shown the way often, but they rejected the way and turned like sheep, turning to their own way. Paul goes on in verse 23 and he writes, And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It was not only heaven that they could not get right, but it was primarily the way to heaven that they corrupted. They brought glory in vanity. They worshipped the creature and not Christ. They changed the truth of God into a lie. This is subversion within our own minds and we subvert within our own minds that which is against our own souls. That which is against our own souls. And we don't even know we're doing it. How unreal is that? You know, I love it. I I, I find it incredible. I, I see people who desire to have a proof of God, yet they don't desire to have a proof of anything that they believe. They want to see proof that God exists and... And I would answer to them exactly what that 17-year-old girl said to me, and that was, open your eyes and look around. They don't want to open their eyes. So the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. It's not just faith on faith that we believe. We see the evidence of the creation manifested in God. There had to be a creator. We recognise that. But they believe in vanity. They think that they're going to disappear in a puff of smoke or they think that they're going to you know, all enter into some sort of nirvanic state or, or something like that on no evidence whatsoever other their own imaginations. And the world is doing this and the world is running headlong into a lie. No matter how committed these soldiers were to the water, they nevertheless perished in the sand. Reality remained Real. Stubborn thing, reality, isn't it? It's a very stubborn thing. This is where the world of godless men is today. Psalm 81.12 says, So I gave them up to their own hearts, lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Every one of those scripture references are in your notes in the sermon outline. 
They're all there so you can look them up again yourself. Reality remains real. But when the men would rather pursue a mirage, God leaves them to their own devices. Let's take a biblical look at a few examples. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 47. (coughs) Isaiah chapter 47, just going to read two verses there. When God was angered with the people of Israel, who continued to seek after him through vanity, God pronounced something to them. So they, they were... They were <laughs> the Bible's got another passage somewhere else and it says, they feared the Lord, but they served their idols. They feared the Lord, but they served their idols. And this is exactly what's happening here. In verse 12, the Lord speaks to them and he says, Stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast laboured from thy youth. If so be, thou shalt be able to profit. If so be, thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers and stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. They've been trusting in vanity. They've been trusting in monthly prognosticators. Anybody got the Women's Weekly that comes out monthly? Yeah. And you got all these monthly prognosticators in the Women's Weekly? That's what they do. The first thing they do, they check out their, their, their horoscope, right? And the horoscope's wonderfully written, so lusciously broad that anybody can fit their own imagination in there. Oh, that's what's going to happen to me. My mum used to, write, used to deal with tarot cards and she would stick one on her fridge every day. And she'd say, that's how my day's going to be today. Death. Didn't mean death, apparently. It meant something not good. This is an incredible thing. This is what God is is chastising Israel against. Let them deliver you. Don't come seeking after me now. Let them deliver you. You've been looking after them. You've been watching them. You've You've been gaining and living your life in accordance to your own vain imaginations. Let that deliver you now. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah and have a look at what they were looking at to deliver them. Jeremiah chapter 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the next book. Here again we have people who deny reality and turn to vanity. I'm going to read from 3 to 16 here because you want to get the entire picture of this. It's an incredible thing. This is one of the customs of the people that the Lord sees as vain. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3 to 16. See if you can recognise anything within this. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. 
The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread unto the plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapours to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. I like that. They are vanity in the work of errors. In the time of visitation, they shall perish. Reality will remain real in the end. There's another passage in Isaiah, and I love the one in Isaiah. It's a little bit more lengthy than that, but it probably gives you another indication of this vanity. And he speaks about them, how they, 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 the workman chops a tree down from the forest and he brings it down and then part of it, then he chops it up and he makes himself a fire and he, and he cooks by the fire and he enjoys the fire. And, and he's also warmed by the fire and he sees it and he says, ah, I'm warmed. And then he eats from the meat that he cooks on the top of the fire and then the residue of the tree, he makes an idol and he falls down and he worships the idol. And Papa goes on and he says, does not man see part of it I have used to warm myself with, the other part of it I've cooked and made food on and the other part I've made myself a golden an image to worship and fall down and say, deliver me. They worship at the stock of a tree. They don't consider Neither is it in them to do good. Is there not a lie in my right hand? And this is exactly the vanity of people with respect to heaven. They don't want to see. Yes, heaven is real. 100% it's real. 100% heaven is real. It's the dwelling place of God. And it is the place of God. And it's also there for people. People are there. But there is only one way to access heaven and it's not through their vain imaginations. Jesus told Nicodemus why it is that people prefer to make up their own vision of heaven and how to get there. You want to turn there with me? John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And it's not due to a lack of knowledge and it's not because they have not been told. John chapter 3. We're going to skip verse 16 because everybody knows verse 16. We're going to skip verse 17. Most people know that one too. We'll skip verse 18. Let's just dive straight into 19 to give the understanding of why the condemnation has come upon the world that rejects God and rejects his Christ. Verse 19 is the reason. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
preacher of Ecclesiastes wrote, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Many inventions. Turn your Bibles while you're there to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17. Ephesians 4.17, Paul writes, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. There is a vanity in the mind of the Gentiles. It's really interesting because Paul here writes to the Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles who have believed the gospel of Christ, who have now the light of the Lord within their lives and their minds are open, their minds are awake. I don't know if you recognise this. Did this ever happen to you when you were born again? Did all of a sudden everything make sense? Everything in the world sort of makes sense today. I didn't realise it didn't really make sense until after I was saved. Now all of a sudden there was clarity. Everything makes perfect sense. Why? Because now I have a biblical worldview. I've got a worldview through the scriptures that tells me everything that is going on in the world today makes perfect sense. Only, however, from the biblical worldview. It's only from the book that we understand what's going on. But you need to have the Spirit of God in you to be able to see that. Otherwise, we walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their own mind, having the understanding darkened. And the understanding is not darkened because of any other reason other than our own desires. We didn't want to know. We didn't want to believe the truth. Do you remember Paul? Paul used to be Saul. Paul was Saul. Saul was the persecutor of the brethren. He was a persecutor of the church. And he says that grace was given to him because he did what he did ignorantly. Okay? But there seems to be a difference in his ignorance to the ignorance of the Gentiles that he's speaking about here. And the difference seems to be a willful one. Remember there was other Jews also that went against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were willfully ignorant. And this is what we see here. Reality is indeed a stubborn thing. It's immovable no matter how hard people scream to believe a lie. But deception is the mark of the last days. Deception is the mark of the last days. But I want you to be so encouraged. Why? Because deception has a limited government. It's a limited government. Reality will still be real. And it will always be real and that will not change. Deception simply cannot reign. Okay, so we've spoken about heaven. We've spoken about what heaven is to a degree. We've spoken about the vanity of men's mind. But now the most important question for us is we recognise that there's people in heaven, but who goes there? Who goes there? Last point, and I'll close on this. We've seen what it is. We've seen what heaven is not. No, we have not gone into specifics. No, we have not spoken of the nirvana of the East, nor the mysticism of the New Age, nor the purgatory of the Catholic 
nor the evaporation of the destructionists or the vanishing of the materialists. Vanity is vanity and there is little point identifying its children. The real question that is before us is who goes there? Who goes there? And from what I see in the Bible, there are only two types of people who certainly will not be in heaven. These are the two types of people who I do not believe in any way will be in heaven. They are one, it will not be those who believe they deserve to be there. It will not be those who believe they deserve to be there. There's a lot of people who believe that they deserve to go to heaven. They won't be going to heaven. And it will not be those who prefer darkness to light. It will not be those who prefer darkness to light. Isaiah 57.15, we looked at it before. Let me read it for you again. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It is clear indeed that there will be people in heaven and those identified in the text are those of a contrite and a humble spirit. Those who think less of themselves than others do of them. Those who might be greater in the eyes of others than in their own eyes. They are the humble ones. They are the contrite ones. Those who are not quick to put themselves on a pedestal. Those who are penitent, remorseful, even ashamed of their sin before the one who is high and lofty, that inhabiteth his eternity, whose name is holy. These, these will be in heaven with God. It will be these who have heard the opportunity of the gospel, the forgiveness of sin through the name that is above all names, and that name is the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be in heaven. They will be in heaven. Jesus is the Holy One of God. So confesses the devils themselves. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the firstborn of the children of God. He is just and good. He is holy and he is righteous. Jesus is the name above all names that every knee shall bow at. He is the one who died to pay the penalty of the sins of the whole world. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the joy. This is the gift. That is the gift that needs to be claimed. You see, Jesus died for everyone. He died for the entire world. But it won't be the entire world who partake of that salvation that Jesus has procured for them. He's, he's, he's made and given salvation to them. It's a gift. But not everybody will receive the gift. The mother prepares the dinner for the entire family that they might eat and live. But if a family member decides not to partake, he will not eat and die. The provision is made, but not everybody partakes. That's what I see in the scriptures. I don't see that God has chosen to, to save some and then damn others. I don't see that in the scriptures. I see a loving God that has made the provision for all the world. So turn there. Turn there with me to John 3. And let's this time include verse 16. And we'll take our text from verse 14 that we see the context of what Jesus was referring to. Some background. Jesus was speaking to a teacher, a master of Israel. And this master of Israel knows the Old Testament. Jesus was referring to the Old Testament. There was a time in the book of Numbers where these fiery serpents were biting the people and the people were dying. They were dying all over the place. 
and Moses had prayed that the Lord would provide a way for them, that he would have mercy for the people. And the Lord had instructed him and he said, I want you to make a brazen serpent and I want you to put it on a, on a pole, on a, on, a, on a tree in the wilderness. All who behold that serpent will live and they'll be healed. And we didn't know this at the time in the book of Numbers. It was a preview of Christ. Jesus Christ would be that serpent that would be lifted up. The picture of the serpent, the serpent is a symbol of sin in the scriptures. You know that. But the brazen serpent is also a picture of sin judged. Okay, It's a picture of judgment and that it's high and lifted up. Jesus Christ became sin for us, the scriptures teach us. Jesus was sin judged on the cross. Now he brings to life that to Nicodemus and he says this in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So we ask you the simple question, who is it that will be in heaven? Well, it's he that believes. He that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came, that gave his life to for the sins of the world. Who will be in heaven? Everyone who believes this truth. Who will not be in heaven? He that does not believe this. He that believeth not is condemned already. But he that believeth shall not be condemned. Shall not be condemned. This is a decision that takes a moment to make. <laughs> takes a moment to make. Pastor, you're saying that just a person that has a 30 second prayer. Jesus, please forgive me and come into my life. Are you saying that that person now goes to heaven irrespective of all the sin that he's done within his life? There's two words that commit a man to a woman to life, for life. Simply, I do. Are you saying that those two words will commit those two for life in spite of his, you know, lustful tendencies and adulteries and everything like that and all his life before? Well, the question you've got to ask yourself is how long did it take for him to make that decision? You know, to many women, far too long. You know, far too long just to get to that point where they're standing at the altar. Well, it's exactly the same with regards to us. You know, it took me 12, 13 years before I said I do to my husband and the Lord Jesus Christ took me 13 years to get to that point, you know. Young girl sharing the gospel with me and told me to open my eyes. Well, I opened my eyes. And the Lord did a work in my life through those last 13 years to see him for who he is. And then I said, I do. I said, I will. I believe. I believe. I believe the gospel. Why would a loving God make salvation so difficult? Why would he make it difficult? Why would he not make it simple? It is simple and yet it seems to be a stumbling block. And it's able to abase 
the proud. It's able to bring them low. One of the most proud individuals that you can think of is an individual who is lofty and high and seated on the high seats of government. Uh, they're very difficult. They're very proud individuals. Very hard to get them humble within their hearts. And yet there's an account of that in the book of Acts, chapter 8. Book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 36. There's an Ethiopian eunuch who'd actually been moving along his way and as he'd been riding in his chariot, he'd been reading the book of Isaiah. Philip drew near to, to this, this, this man who was reading the book of Isaiah and he actually called out and he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the man said, How can I let some man explain it to me? Let some man tell me and show me. So Philip showed him the gospel through the book. Verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptised? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What saves you? Who's going to be in heaven? Will the Ethiopian eunuch be in heaven? 100% he's going to be there. 100% he's going to be there. You and I are going to see him. We're going to meet him. We're going to meet him. How awesome is that? Do you know that heaven is a place of fellowship? Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. I'll talk about that next week. We're going to meet him. Acts chapter 16, verse 26. (coughs) I copied and pasted the same text. I have to use my Bible now. Acts chapter 16. There's another event that happens here. There's a few men in prison at the time and they were singing and they were praising God. In prison, they were praising God. They were singing psalms and hymns. It was a beautiful time that they were sharing together. And then suddenly an earthquake had occurred. Acts 16. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. That's the dangerous thing in a prison with all the doors open and everyone's bands loose. That's usually to, to Pentecostals today that will be a sign of God to run. Yeah. Well, not to these individuals. Not to these individuals. To these individuals, they saw something very different. Sorry. Was I being facetious? No, yeah. I, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. For some reason it was discernment in these men, something else was going on. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Consider, please consider the seriousness of this question. Please consider this. Please consider this just for a second. Someone's going to come to you and they're broken of heart, broken of spirit and nigh on the verge of death and they're going to ask you the question, what must I do to be saved? You've got 30 seconds. What are you going to say to them? It's an incredible. I saw this account. I saw this account with, with Ray Comfort online once and he was talking to a Mormon guy. And he goes, right, I've got five minutes. I want you to tell me how I can go to heaven. 
And the guy was like, well, you know, this, that, and the other. And I, I can't, two minutes left, how am I going to go to heaven? He started to tell me how I've got to go to heaven. What do I need to be able to go to heaven? And he got it down. You've got 30 seconds now. I've got 30 seconds left. What are you going to tell me that I might be able to go to heaven? In 30 seconds, I am going to die. What are you going to say? Exactly what it says here. One verse. One verse and one verse alone. And it tells them exactly. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. How long did that take? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is not difficult. It is not complex. It is not convoluted. It is simple. The gospel is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Who shall not enter in? Who won't be there? Those who won't believe. Those who won't believe. Only those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. They are the ones who will be in heaven. Is that exciting? How simple is the gospel? Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved. How simple. How simple. Heaven is a place where God dwells. There's people there. There's people there. Who are there? All who believe. Do you believe? Will you believe? If you don't believe, will you believe? Will you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, something that happens in your heart, you know. I don't need to see raised hands. I don't need to have you come to the front. But you need to believe the Lord and you need to believe it in your heart. And if you do... Praise God. You're going to be one of those people that are in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect picture of the salvation and the hope that we have. An understanding of heaven, dear Lord, that perhaps we didn't know before. And yet, dear Father, so wonderfully presented in your scriptures. I pray, dear God, that you would continue to go before us, that you would strengthen us, that you would also, dear Lord, give us the quick wit within our own minds to be able to share with all people that if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. I pray, dear Father, that you would give us, not only, dear Lord, as you have given us your words, but you would give us the boldness to be able to share this simple truth. No matter, dear Lord, the cost, the time is short, dear Father, These days are drawing to a close and I just ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would give us an urgency for the gospel in these days and that we would be burdened for the lost, more burdened, dear Lord, than we are for our own lives, that we would be burdened for the eternal life of those who are lost. I thank you, dear Father, for this time and I ask you, dear Lord, go with your people, build them up, strengthen them for the word of the living God. And dear Lord, until you come for us, until we go to you, we give you thanks and praise for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.